0: Hey there everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Outdoors Podcast. My name is AJ. This is a podcast where we mainly talk about the outdoors most of the time. Uh, I just launched a new series of videos on our spring trip to Montauk State Park over on YouTube. So if you are into fly fishing or RV camping or really just watching fun videos on your phone, uh, go check those out. I think they're pretty great. Uh, Secondly, if you want to see the actual backpacking trip that Casey and I talk about today, Go check that out on YouTube as well or on my website at outdoorspodcast.com. Coming up in the next few weeks, I will be posting episodes with my buddy, Purist on the Fly from Instagram, uh, our wedding photographer, Allie Boundy, who we just absolutely love so far, uh, the new managing director of the RV Women's Alliance, Jessica Ryder, and a couple more. So keep an eye out for those episodes. I loved each and every one of those conversations. On today's episode of the podcast, I get to talk to my buddy and the second return guest to the podcast, Casey Heater. Katie is a backpacker. Katie, Casey is a backpacking expert, flat out, having seen hundreds of nights in the woods, some of them under negative thirty degrees Fahrenheit. For fuck's sakes, uh, Casey is just a straight up pro. Uh, Casey, my fiance Sarah, and I, along with Casey's dog Odin and our dog Yosi. Recently went on a backpacking trip in the Red River Gorge in Kentucky. Casey and I decided we should do a podcast from our backcountry campsite, and I'm really glad we did. Uh, we talked about tents and hammocks, camping ethics, conversations, Um We talked about some of our favorite outdoor retailers like T. Hargrove Fly Fishing Shop here in St. Louis and Quest in Louisville, where Casey's actually from. Uh, We talk at some length about how much we love cottage vendors and small producers. We finish up with a short conversation about the future of the Red River Gorge and what a new resort that's being proposed might bring both good and bad to the area. Uh, We had some really great conversations over the course of the weekend, and I'm really glad I get to bring you this one on the podcast. Let's dig right in. We're slightly above
1: everybody else on the intellectual <laughs> scale,
2: I think. Altitude sickness is no joke.
0: Once it gets below zero, it's cold.
1: There are a lot less sportsmen now than there were, say, twenty years ago.
0: You're actually you were used as a pawn okay. in our game to figure out what it was that we were doing wrong. You know, at that point we didn't have one great tent.
2: Like we had one good 10, one not good 10. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
1: wind was just whipping uh there's like snow beaties, <laughs> just like pelting to the face <laughs>
2: all right we are live sir mr casey
1: heater how are you good to see you again on the podcast excellent i'm doing great thanks for having me again
2: uh well so we are in the red river gorge we're doing my very first podcast outdoors so congratulations on being the guest for the very first one of those
1: yeah the outdoors outdoor podcast absolutely
2: (laughs) podcasting outdoors as my twitter uh, (laughs) handle is podcast outdoors um so we came over here on wednesday we did a little rv camping at natural bridge campground which was actually a really great campground for us the Uh, The owners, or at least the people that were managing it, were super friendly and nice. They kind of helped us out a couple of different ways. Uh, You picked us up at the campground on Friday evening after work, and then we kind of came out here. We're not going to give away your site, but basically uh, just outside of the Red River Gorge-specific area in the Daniel Boone National Forest. uh, And we did a little hammock camping.
1: Yeah, basically uh, my very close friends know exactly where we're at. Uh, We found it and kind of kept it a secret.
2: Yeah. yeah, this is a pretty sweet site. I mean, we've been up here for two nights. Uh, we've got, you know, a ton of privacy. We only saw one other person that came down here in the entire three days that we've been over here. Um, and it's just a fantastic overlook of the area. We've got this really great campsite, a couple of hammocks, and you've got a tent uh, let's talk about your tent, right? So this is your first tenting experience
1: in a while, right? Uh, probably about five, six, seven years, something like that.
2: Gotcha. And you bought a new tent kind of not specifically for this trip, but more recently, what tent did you buy?
1: Uh, it was, I bought it from a friend, uh, it's called the Landshan 3 UL. Gotcha. It, uh, it, I mean, it's, it's, I bought it for like 88, 90 bucks, something like that. Uh, and I mean, for, it has a lot of space. It fits me and my dog. It's a one person tent technically. But, uh, other than that, I mean, it's just me getting used to the ground as as an actual hammock camper. Getting used to the ground is very difficult. Yeah.
2: And I mean, I commented when you got it, you know, fully put up and everything, it does look a little bit like a z-packs duplex it's got kind of a similar format and layout and functionality it's kind of a a single piece mainly bug net tent with a, a bathtub bottom and then it's got a nice rain tarp that uses a couple of hiking sticks yeah uh to you know suspend it up in the air or what they would call uh a, not a freestanding tent but a semi freestanding tent i think y- is what they call that uh because it does need tension to stand up like you do have to have it staked out correct
1: yes uh I use six stakes to pull all the sides out uh and i actually have two hiking poles on the in not inside but on the direct outside to keep it from to keep it standing up yeah and it has a an outside It's a double wall tent technically gotcha. it has a bug net on the inside that you can detach from the outside shell and just look at the stars but Like we found out this morning, it was super foggy, and we all got kind of damp.
2: Yeah, when we woke up this morning, I mean, quite frankly, I looked out at about 6 o'clock, just kind of peered out from underneath my tarp in my hammock, and uh, really just everything was blanketed in kind of a steamy fog. Yeah. Uh, Out to the horizon, really even above the horizon, just the whole uh, viewpoint was just a gray mist, and I got up, used the restroom at about 6, got back into my hammock, Got up again at about 8, and a lot of that fog had really burned off, and it was just kind of in one part of the valley, but we still did get to see it with a lot of, like, really good definition. Yeah. And then now by 10.30 or so in the morning, it's pretty much all burned off, and we've just still got this beautiful kind of unobstructed view of the gorge again.
1: Yeah, it's like, a. I don't know if this is the correct term for it or not, but we, we've definitely got a good vista of the entire area. Like yeah. It's a, a it's definitely a point and... You can see all the other rock formations and trees and this place, like I said earlier, this place looks beautiful in the fall.
2: Yeah, I mean, we've got more than, you know, a, a 180 degree field of vision from this point. We've really got more like 270 to 300 degrees because it's kind of juts out into the area so we can see way back to our left and way back to our right uh, and really just had a nice evening in camp. So... You know, you're from the Louisville area. You come down to the Gorge quite a bit. We've talked about this on our last episode of the podcast, but, you know, it's been the better part of a year now since we talked last. A little bit. What is it about the Gorge that kind of keeps drawing you down here versus some of the other places? And, you know, we're going to talk about your 12 states in in 12 months challenge here in a second. But what is it about the Gorge that just kind of keeps drawing you back and makes you want to
1: spend a lot of time here? Well, one, it's just super close. Uh, And... Also it's natural splendor. It's uh it's a really beautiful place. It's really easy to get to. It takes about an hour and a half to get here. Um and dogs, <laughs> dogs running are, by. Yeah, the dogs are running by. Yeah. <laughs> uh it, I mean it's you know there's always a different trail to be walked, you yeah. know, and if I ever want to come back to my spot, I always come back to my spot, but like we did yesterday, we hiked Oxia a- Ridge. Uh, out and back yeah
2: great great day hike about four and a half ish miles to do it out and back and not a lot of incline not a lot of decline just relatively flat there was enough to make it interesting Mm -hmm. but just a really great day hike now that is actually a loop that you can do kind of a lower section and then there's a big stair climb or decline depending on which way you take it right um and we just chose to kind of do an out and back and avoid some of the uh the stairs Partly because they're a graded stairs. Yeah, they're a we, metal grade stairs. We had a couple of dogs with us, so that may have been a challenge for their paws. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, we were just kind of trying to keep it relatively chill and not go through a bunch of incline or decline. Right. Uh, which was a really nice day hike. I mean, yeah. that was just a really nice... We didn't probably get out to the trail until probably close to 2 o'clock. And yeah. we still had plenty of time to get it done, come back, do a little bit of driving, get back to our trailhead for the campsite, and get back here with plenty of time before sunset. So... Uh really good choice. I appreciated that recommendation. Good. There were a ton of people at the trailhead and, and on the trail, but overall it didn't uh, spoil the experience. We had a bunch of great people walking by, created just like enough interaction where you kind of felt like there were people around, but not where you just were constantly dodging folks.
1: Yeah, we weren't bombarded with people. Yeah. It was, you know, which is kind of nice. But at the beginning of the coronavirus, this place was just overrun with you know, new people, which is fun. Everybody gets the chance to be outdoors yeah. and things like that. But, you know, it kind of ruins the natural goodness of the area.
2: Yeah. So we talked a little bit about that uh, kind of earlier throughout the trip. And, you know, one of the things that I think, you know, you and I always have great cons- conversations around is, is the idea of kind of conservation and land management and outdoor ethics and how you should treat the land and what is ethical, respectable behavior and what's kind of pushing the boundaries or being disrespectful. Um, I would say we spent a pretty good amount of our time in all of our chats kind of focused on like, what do we think is is ethical behavior in the outdoors and how can we improve on it? And where do we come from? Right. Both of you and I recognize, I think it's important for everyone. You know, neither one of us started out taking as good a care of our ecosystem as we do now. It's through our hobby of backpacking and camping that we've grown more appreciative of the land, more appreciative of the landscape, and so therefore we wanna take better care of it over time. Would you say that's pretty fair?
1: Absolutely, yeah. Like like we talked about before, I had a a person that I know, and I was terrible at leaving wrappers and things like that behind. And I have a person that uh, that was basically semi-hazing me, Uh, about it he was like you're doing a terrible job you're a terrible person things like that (laughs) just basically like kind of smacking me in the face and over time it kind of hit me and nowadays I actually make the effort to leave no trace or tread lightly
2: yeah yeah we were kind of talking about the differences and and you know what we believe is uh or or what we have found to be like reasonable practices and what you should do we've been picking up trash along the way as we see it we've been kind of trying to do what we can and, and make sure that we're enjoying ourselves along the way. Um, you know, part of your real background and, and experience in backpacking and camping is here in the Gorge, but I know that you're undertaking a big challenge this year at kind of the uh, instigation of one of your friends, this 12 states in 12 months challenge. So tell me a little bit about that. What's that about?
1: Yeah, so one of my friends on Hammock Forums, I actually know him in person, but uh, he has the online persona of Cutlass Car. Cool. And uh, he has issued a challenge. It's called uh, Twelve States in Twelve Months. Gotcha. And so I thought that as a really unique challenge. And uh, during this time, <laughs> Odie's walking on the edge. Yeah, kind of nervous. His
0: cattle dog is like literally at the edge of a six hundred, seven hundred foot cliff.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in the in the twelve. Uh, 12 states in 12 months basically it's like hey get outdoors go do something you're unfamiliar with yeah and uh so this year i have been to minnesota uh indiana uh obviously kentucky um georgia north carolina and next uh, next week I'm going to Pennsylvania. Nice. So in four months, I've already crossed off six states. That's awesome. And, you know, I have plans to go to Ohio and West Virginia and Virginia and then wherever from that. I was actually getting ready to come to Missouri yeah. last week to visit you. Yeah, that's
2: what kind of spurred this trip is, is Casey hit me up and basically said, you know, hey, we're uh, thinking about coming to Missouri. I'm doing this challenge. I'm trying to hit a bunch of different parks, and obviously we're friends on – Uh, we're friends on Facebook. So I'd kind of seen some of the trips that you were taking and some of the road trips and stuff. And so we kind of started chatting about it and you said, Hey, you know, what's going on with the Mark Twain national forest. And that's kind of one of the areas that I'm pretty familiar with in the Missouri, you know, state. Uh, and so I was like, oh yeah, there's definitely a couple of places you should go. In fact, when you come, I'll definitely go backpacking with you. Like what a great opportunity to show you my state. Yeah. And, um, cause we've tried to, to talk about trips here in the gorge before we've tried to kind of hook up on trips, but we've just never been able to make it happen. And then I had a work commitment that showed up kind of early this coming week that prevented, or sorry, er, at the, last the week. start of last week that prevented me from being able to commit to last weekend and do stuff. Uh, so we basically made the decision, you know, I, I said, Hey Casey, I really apologize. I can't come meet you on this trip and help you out, but I do really want to get out and stretch the bus's legs a little bit as we start to kind of explore a little bit more the, the United States. And this seems like a really good trip for us. I've got time built in, I'm going to bring the RV over and then, you know, hopefully you can pick us up and we can go do some backpacking. Right. So it all worked out really well. Uh, it's unfortunate that you didn't get to come to Missouri and cross another state off your list. I know oh, it'll you, happen. It'll you know, happen eventually. Awesome, awesome. So it's uh, you know we're going to make some recommendations, and if you're listening to the podcast, if you're from Missouri, uh, go to either the Facebook post for this podcast or go to the Instagram post for this podcast, and leave a comment on some places that you think Casey should check out when he comes to Missouri, if there's anywhere uh, either inside or outside of the Mark Twain National Forest. Give me some recommendations on places that I can check out and send Casey to. Or uh, anywhere
1: in that fact. Like, any, If any if anybody's listening, just anywhere outside of my normal There you area. go. If
2: you're outside of the state of Kentucky, send us some recommendations on where Casey should go backpacking. Obviously, keep in mind that most of these trips he's probably going to drive to. We're not going to just send him on 12 flights or six more <laughs> flights throughout the <laughs> yeah, year. Yeah, it's kind of expensive. So, so let's not hit him with like, you know, Colorado, Utah, California and, and Seattle. Yeah, Colorado's kind of a 16-hour drive. Yeah, that's, that's uh, a bit of a, a trek uh you know i actually have a a buddy that drove straight through from la to st louis it's a 36 hour drive oh my gosh and his stereo was broken this is before like everybody had you know ipods and stuff and so he's his stereo in his car broke so he drove in 36 hours and just dead silence in Eternal screaming happens at and, that point. And then he, oh, and he just was totally fine with it. And then he got home and he realized that he did some car maintenance and he found out that it was a fuse that was out. Oh, God. And totally could have had the stereo <laughs> the entire way. So, uh, you know, what is it about, you know, the 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 concept of hammocking? I mean, we've talked about this a little bit in the last podcast, but why is it that you like hammocking so much more than tent camping? Because I know you
1: had a little bit of a struggle yeah. over
2: the last couple of nights getting to sleep. Talk a little bit about that and, and why hammocking has been so good to you.
1: So, uh, you know, I kind of boil it down to one thing. It reminds me of, uh, obviously it doesn't remind, but it, the hammock swings, So that gentle little rocking back and forth motion just knocks me out. Yeah. And uh, it's, in my opinion, so much more comfortable because you're not exactly laying flat and your head's not compressed and everything like that. You kind of have like a a gentle little incline or decline based on how you like to sleep. Yeah. But when you're on a tent, you're kind of at the mercy of... How the ground is? Yeah. Like, I'm I'm on a gentle decline. My feet were facing downwards. Yeah, I mean you've got at least probably three to
2: five percent grade that you're laying the, on, yeah. and that's whether you put your head at the bottom, foot at the bottom, or whether you're laying sideways. It's incredibly difficult to get a good night's sleep. Yeah, on just about any kind of an incline. Yeah, and like you said, we're in a site that doesn't have a lot of uh, you know flat ground, and and quite frankly, we're at a site that doesn't really even have. A lot of open area right there was really only one spot for you to be able to put your tent yeah and because of that uh it really limited the ways that you could orient it and because of that it really limited the ways that you could sleep yeah so uh i feel for you i'm very grateful that you were nice <sighs> enough to to take the tent and uh to let sarah and i kind of occupy the two reasonable spots for hammocks, because I know the first night before I had Yozie in the hammock with me, I slept like a stone, so <laughs> I felt great. Uh, I brought my dog into the, the hammock with me last night because we had some rain going on just before uh, bed, and and rather than putting her in her little tent, which is, I would say, semi-waterproof, I just brought her into the hammock with me, and we had a hard time getting comfortable. Now, I know you've spent a ton of nights in, in your hammock with your dog. And yeah, have slightly, a- although not physically bigger he weighs more your dog's about 60 pounds mine's about 50 but you've got a cattle dog i've got kind of an australian shepherdish dog yeah uh how is it that you're able to just get comfortable is it just you guys have figured out your sleeping position that's just what it is
1: pretty much uh well i've also had him since he was a wee like you've had yozzy since a wee pup right but uh you know within the first Five months of me having Odin he was in the hammock with me sleeping in the hammock right. and he was about the size of a small you know ball right <laughs> right and at that point he was sleeping on my chest but the bigger he got the more he migrated down to my legs gotcha and now that he's at my legs I have to incline my hammock more at the feet area so it levels out
2: yeah that makes sense because if you add an extra 60 pounds down where there normally wouldn't be that's going to screw with your hang that's actually a really interesting point that i hadn't really thought about because one of the things that inevitably ends up happening
1: is you slide down
2: is i ended up at the foot end of my hammock more often than not last night and i never thought about the fact that i was adding an extra 50 pounds where there normally wouldn't be well there
1: you go next time you take yosie with you and you're sleeping in the hammock with you make sure your feet area is a little bit higher than normal.
2: Yeah, and I mean, one of the other things that I think we've kind of figured out over the course of this trip, and one of the reasons that I really like backpacking or camping with, not only my friends, but also, you know, A, you and I are both gear dorks. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, And I also really like backpacking with kind of new people, uh, people that I haven't done a lot of camping with, because it really gives you kind of how, uh, an idea of how the other person does stuff, right? Like, Mm -hmm. we've spent a lot of time comparing like you know your stuff sacks and mine and the way that you organize your bag and the way that you cook stuff and how you think about your food and I've done the same and so we've kind of gotten to compare ideas and I'm going to steal some of your ideas (laughs) when I get home you'll probably borrow from one or two of mine oh
1: yeah
2: uh and I think it's it's really important like if you're new to backpacking or if you're really new to any hobby especially outdoor related like it really helps to find people that have been there, done that, that have a lot more experience than you, or at least maybe a different experience than you that can kind of start to help you figure out maybe some of the areas that you could improve or some of the areas that like, you know, you could shed some weight. Um, You know, I've always wanted a Dyneema Cuban fiber, you know, DCF tarp, um, and I've never really bit the bullet to buy one. And then all of a sudden you walked up with yours and I was like, oh my God, this is so much lighter and smaller than mine uh granted i have a wedding coming up so i won't be dropping the cash on that anytime soon
1: hey everybody it'll make a good wedding gift for them yeah absolutely if you're out there and you want
2: to support the channel i will take a 12 foot with with doors camo hammock gear cuban fiber tarp <laughs> i know it's about four hundo uh but if you're feeling extremely generous and want to throw in on one of those uh hit me up and let me know um i would gladly take one of those um <laughs> So, you know, I think that it's been fun to kind of like look at your gear and kind of see how you do things. And you've definitely got a different approach to certain stuff. But there's a lot of commonalities, too. Um, You know, I have found in my pursuit of fly fishing that, that making friends that are, A, both kind of at the same spot that I am so we can kind of ask each other our stupid questions. Uh, but then also making friends that are just way more advanced and learned in the topic has been helping me kind of level up faster Yeah. Uh, than if I was just trying to struggle through it on my own. I'm very lucky that in St. Louis, we have a great fly shop called T. Hargrove's uh, Fly Shop that has just some incredible people. Shout out to Tom and Craig uh, and
1: Rob. Small flex. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> Noah uh,
2: and Carl. Uh, all the dudes at the shop uh, that have really been instrumental in helping me get better at fishing. So uh, we talked a little bit about an outfitter that's closer to home for you that's really kind of uh, in the middle of work and home for you. Yeah, it's kind uh, of a it's problem. It's called Quest. What What is it so much that you love about Quest?
1: Well, also uh, it's a lot of things, really. Uh, one, like you said, it's in between home and work. So after work, I generally go in and they have a, a coffee spot there. Like they literally have a coffee spot inside of it. And it's called Base Camp Coffee. Brilliant. Yeah. And uh, so I'll usually go in there after work and grab a cup of coffee and just, you know, shoot the shit with people Uh, and just hang out and talk shop. And inevitably, I'm ended up buying something. Of course. Yeah. And, I mean, it's the camaraderie there. Everybody knows my name. I know everybody's name, basically. Uh, And it's just, you know, the layout there is awesome. They have everything I need. Yeah. If I tell them something new or cool came out, like uh, ULA. ULA came out, and I was like, hey, it'd be cool if you had those backpacks. Like, within six months, they had ULA backpacks. Oh, that's really cool.
2: That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, one of the things that we were talking about that I think is really uh, an upside of Quest, and shout out to those guys um is that they do feature a lot of kind of what we would call cottage industry vendors or smaller manufacturers that you're not going to necessarily see in like backpacker magazine yeah uh you know and a lot of stuff is like you know hammocker stuff or backpacking stuff but you know there's tons of great smaller manufacturers out there that are making really high quality gear most of the time it's only available through their websites they don't typically interact with a ton of retailers So it's really cool that Quest is, you know, of the mentality of like, hey, we want to not only, you know, do good business for ourselves, but we also want to, uh, you know, highlight some of those smaller brands and the the maybe even better made equipment uh, in in many people's eyes. Like, I'll take a a ULA backpack over like a Gregory or an Osprey all day
1: long. But they're also very good backpacks. Great backpacks. Not
2: to put them down, but like, I just, you know, for me... ULA and I, you know, I want to hear your insight on your bag too. Uh, ULA, the the Om 2.0 to me was like a great all around bag because it's about 200 bucks. It's at or under two pounds, depending on how you kind of outfit it. Uh, it's a 60 liter bag. It's got a great mesh pocket on the front for all kinds of gear. The, the side pockets are big enough for lots of water bottles and it's got enough attachment points that you can kind of put some extra stuff on it. It doesn't have what you would call a brain. So kind of a top. Yeah. So you lose kind of like of a that. roll top or a compression. Yeah. Top. yeah it's just kind of a, a cinch sack top. Oh and, yeah. I see and it now. Yeah. then there's just a compression strap that goes over the top of it. Um, but what I love about that bag is that, like, for the most part, when you go to a Quest or an Alpine shop or some of these other kind of local retailers, a lot of times what you're going to see are your standard Osprey and Gregory and maybe Deuter bags and maybe one other brand. Mm-hmm. And most of those bags are in the, like, 250 to 300 range. A lot of the Gregory's can get over 300, if, you know, depending on how big you go. And to me, they don't really offer a lot more for the dollars, then two hundred bucks, or, you're, or close to two hundred dollars, that you're going to get with like a ULA Ohm 2.0 or some of the other cottage industry bags. And
1: the cool thing about these types of packs, the cottage vendor packs, is when you contact them, you can order your exact measurements. Yeah, like if you're a 32 inch, you know, inseam, and you're a 19. On your spine, they can, and you want a J hook strap instead of an S hook. Yeah, they can do whatever you want.
2: Yeah, and that's exactly m- what my experience with ULA was. Is you know they have some pretty thorough sizing charts and mm-hmm. kind of guides on their website, but. I wasn't quite sure if the S or the J hook kind of strap, which is basically just the shape of your strap that goes over your shoulders. uh, And it's for kind of different builds of human beings. Um, You know, I'm not a big buff guy, but at the time that I bought my pack, I felt like I was maybe a little thicker through the chest than, um, you know, some people that might be more into backpacking tend to be kind of a thinner individual. Um, and I wasn't really sure which one to buy. And so I just called the company and some, a human being answered, super friendly and walked me through, like, tell me about what you look like. Tell me about, you know, your height, your weight, your, your chest size and all that stuff. Did you ask for your social and blood type? Too? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. We went on a date two days later. No. Um, but they were, they were, they asked me like just enough information to really make a good recommendation. And I've been very happy with the way that my bag has fit me since it showed up. Yeah. Uh, it came really quickly they were able to turn it around. I don't know what their lead time is right now cuz I
1: was about you know, to say how long did it take you for it to get back?
2: I, honestly, I think it would from deli- from order to delivery on my door was probably under a week. Really? I mean, it was pretty quick.
1: And I think I got excited
2: and may have paid for like, you know, Expedited overnight or chip, shipping. Yeah. Um, but it they they were able to get the order out the door really quick. It seemed like it was something that was pretty much in stock. Um and I didn't ask for like a bunch of crazy
1: customizations.
2: I just kind of told them what sizing and what colors and stuff I wanted.
1: Yeah, because you've got an orange and black backpack and that's kind of cool.
2: Yeah, I do. You know, it's the one downside you and I have talked about um is that, you know, every now and then you certainly don't want to make this a habit, but you know, every now and then you may find yourself in a place where you're camping Uh, where you're not supposed to be. In a place where you're not supposed to be camping. And unfortunately, just, you know, the times that it's happened to us is we were just ill-informed and we didn't have good information. And then we were kind of in a jam and had to do it. Uh, We were really careful about the the sites that we chose and tried to be minimally, you know, invasive as far as, you know, trying not to make a big impact on the area that you were in. Exactly. And so... Um, you know, but every now and then you're going to find yourself, you know, from time to time in a place where you shouldn't be. And you and I have talked about this. We typically like gear that's a little bit more inconspicuous. You've got a real passion for kind of like a hex cam camo. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my under quilt is a a dark green color. My tarps are a, a kind of a muted green color and, so there have been times where we've had to camp, you know, 50 to 100 yards off of a trail that's got some traffic on it. And I felt pretty confident that uh, you aren't going to see me if you're really not looking for me back in the woods. Yeah. Right. And so if, you know, I, the one thing about my backpack is it's you can see me from a mile away. And if it's hunting season and I was on public land, it's probably pretty great if you were trying to blend into the landscape, it's a little bit more difficult. Now, Which, yeah. a, a black rain tarp or, or a rain fly on your backpack solves that problem exactly. real quick. And yeah. I've got a, a Dutch fly rain fly. That's, I don't know, 20 bucks or something. It weighs something basically like nothing. That. Yeah, um, And it serves the purpose of, of doing that. So now, now let me ask you a question. Yeah.
1: What do you, what do you do for Yosie during like hunting seasons and things? you put any kind of bright colors on her?
2: Well, that's a really good question. So, you know, we haven't really done enough backpack camping or hiking in areas that have active hunting. Mm. Um,
1: during those seasons well around here there's active hunting seasons
2: yeah exactly and in missouri there's lots of active hunting seasons too we just don't typically find ourselves in areas where they're allowing public hunting because we're in a lot of of uh state parks and stuff that don't have sanctioned hunting in the area Uh so we shouldn't have that concern my other belief typically would be if you are an ethical smart hunter you need to be able to make the decision on whether you're shooting a doe or a buck or a tom or a hen or whatever it is that you're shooting. If you can't tell the gender of the animal that you're shooting at, then you shouldn't be shooting it. Yeah. And if you can't tell the difference between my dog
1: and a deer, then you shouldn't be shooting it. Well, see, that's where it kind of gets a little gray for my dog because he kind of looks like a coyote. Oh, yeah, I could see that, yeah. Yeah, so that's why, like, especially, like, and hunters really don't like coyotes. Oh, they hate them. Yeah, and so that's why, like, especially during hunting season, I have an orange fleece jacket for him. Yeah. And so I'll always put that orange on it. Gotcha. That way that you're like, oh, that's a coyote, but he's wearing fleece. That's a dog.
2: Look at how close. There's a giant bird flying right above us. Oh and yeah. And he's really low. It's really cool. I wish everybody could see
1: it. Yeah, it's kind of like a. He just a vulture. came in close. Yeah, it's yeah. probably
2: a vulture that just came in really close. Hiking on on thermals. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Um, yeah, and I mean, you know, one of the things if you ha- you know whether you're a big Joe Rogan fan or not, he had a guy on his podcast a while back um, that. Was some sort of world renowned expert on coyotes and coyote science and behavior and migratory patterns and all that stuff. Yeah. And he talked about the fact that coyotes are really one of the only species, and I think it was maybe the only documented species that humans have not figured out how to control their numbers or their populations because there's actual science, or at least according to this guy, I'm talking completely out of my ass on something I heard on somebody else's podcast and I don't know the author. So, are you talking about Dan Flores? Yeah, I think it is Dan Flores. Uh, So take his word for it, not mine. I'm just (laughs) passing on what I heard. Uh, But he basically said that coyotes have this ability to, uh, their their howling at night is oftentimes like a roll call. Mm -hmm. And if they're not getting back the number of responses that they're used to getting, the females literally increase the fertility of their litters. They have more pups per litter and they have lit more litters more often. They like they, they reach an equilibrium biologically based on how many of them are like gaining or, or losing traction in size. That's crazy. So if you kill coyotes, they're basically just gonna replace themselves before you can kill enough of them that it's ever gonna create a difference. And uh, that, and according to the author, there's never been a documented case of like real population control in coyotes due to human intervention Hmm. now i'm not saying that that they shouldn't be hunted um i'm not saying that they should but if there's no real conservation case for the fact that hunting them helps what are we doing yeah now uh that's one author's viewpoint i don't know any of the science or statistics behind it so again i'm kind of talking out of my ass here um You know, I believe in hunting for meat acquisition. I believe in hunting for conservation. I believe in hunting for population management because, unfortunately, sometimes when you have too many bears close to a populated area, you end up with bears in a populated
1: area. Bears, deer, actual hogs. Oh, yeah. There's all kinds
2: of animals out there that we, in my opinion, have to have some sort of relationship with their number management. We have
1: to have an equilibrium with nature. Right. And, unfortunately, we are... Coming into their spot, and it's not fair to them.
2: Yeah, more and more. And and I think the vast majority of bad animal encounters happen because of Habitat. Loss. Uh, loss, right? Yeah. And that we are developing new neighborhoods. I mean, you know, one of the areas that Sarah and I really love in the United States is Boulder, Colorado. And it's this really incredible town. If you've never been there, and I think it gets voted like happiest city in America all the time. Yeah. It's just great landscape, cool architecture. It's got a very like kitschy vibe where it's just, you know, every building looks different. And there's murals everywhere. And there just seems like a lot of good vibes happening everywhere. Uh, But one of the things that you'll see because it's getting so popular, there's this massive amount of urban sprawl that's happening in these huge neighborhoods are being built just on the outskirts of Boulder as you drive in from Denver and you just start to go like, oh, this is definitely having an impact on the wildlife population that lives in this area. Because they've just taken massive swaths of land and turned them into neighborhoods.
1: Yeah, and uh, like that used to be their home, and the way, you know, it's, and then everybody gets up in arms about a coyote or, you know, a fox coming in and. Trying to make a home somewhere or getting into the trash. He was used to that area before we even thought about making that area.
2: Yeah, and I'm not saying that, like, you know, people don't have a right to buy land and build houses and do that whole thing. I mean, don't get me wrong, development's gonna happen. Uh, I think it's just important that as a, a population, we try to understand the impacts of it and do our best to minimize it or at least allow, you know, one of the things that we saw, and I cannot remember where I saw this for the life of me, but. There's some state that installed a wildlife cross uh, a crossing bridge for uh, their like moose and all kinds of other animals. And they do all kinds of really cool like infrastructure projects where basically they've made what looks like a highway overpass, but instead of being concrete, it's got, I mean, rocks and trees and shrubs I mean it looks like a standard piece of wild landscape and these animals now have a a natural way to cross this thoroughway or this throughway Uh, this huge highway. Uh, They've got a safe place to cross and they can do it kind of at their pace and they've got great trail cameras that are showing the actual use of the crossover. Uh, So I think there's, you know, ways that we can be conscious of what we're doing to the landscape and what kind of impact we're having and you know how we can make better decisions on city planning as we continue to expand. You know, I know one of the things that we've seen uh, when I've traveled for work in Dallas, for example, uh, is you know there's a huge sprawl in Dallas and kind of the surrounding area, Dallas Fort Worth. There's tons of growth there, uh, and they're building again massive neighborhoods and and all kinds of of, uh, you know, new area for people to live. And one of the things they're finding is, like, there's not enough highways to get people around. So now they have these massive traffic jams everywhere because they didn't kind of build out the infrastructure that goes with some of those towns. Right. So, you know, uh, do you think that you're going to be a a Kentucky resident for the rest of your life? Or do you have any aspirations of living anywhere else? Or is Kentucky kind of what
1: you want? Kentucky will always be home for me. Cool. But, uh, I mean, I want to... I mean, I fell in love with Colorado. It's just beautiful in every aspect. I mean, uh, like we were talking about Garden of the Gods. Yeah. There's one place where it's completely have forest, and then on the other side of the hill, it looks like a desert in Arizona. Yeah. It's ridiculous.
2: Yeah. It's, It's also really cool that that whole area, if you've ever been to the Garden of the Gods, it's this massive... Uh, What are they called, those flat
1: irons? Yeah, it's like a rock garden.
2: huge flat iron rock garden, and these giant, massive rock buttresses just come screaming out of the ground, hundreds of feet tall. It's got a ton of rock climbing roots, Um, and it Mm -hmm. all used to belong to one
1: guy. Did it really? The whole
2: area was the personal property of one human being.
1: Oh, that'd be awesome. And
2: then they donated it to the state. There's a big plaque on one of the the rock uh, uh, features, and the the uh, stipulation on the donation was that it had to remain free to the public forever
1: that's cool so they cool. would donate
2: it to the state but it always had to be accessible to people for free
1: yeah because we didn't pay going in it was just be like hey park here
2: yeah and then i believe they probably have some sort of a donation box like if you want to make a contribution probably and there's a visitor center that you can go visit and see you know some of the information yeah, but yeah that it's makes a, sense. it's a free area to go visit and i think that's really cool cuz i think you know One of the the challenges that I think we're going to be faced over the next, you know, not necessarily this administration, but over the next 10 years uh, is going to be there's this jockeying back and forth in a lot of states between infrastructure
1: on national parks
2: and also just private versus public land ownership. Yeah, Right. And in some states, you're going to hear like, hey, if we don't conserve these lands by privately acquiring them and making sure they don't fall into the wrong hands. Then they're going to get developed and overrun and da da da. So there's an argument for the privatization of land.
1: That's kind of what the Red River Gorge is going through right now because they're thinking about putting in a giant resort here. Yeah. And it in my in my opinion, you know, everybody's like everybody's opinion's like an asshole. Everybody sure, sure, Has one absolutely. <laughs> but uh, my opinion is I don't like it because one, it'll bring in all these uh, just random. People that, like we just said, just don't care about the area will come into this resort and and just trash the area. Just more
2: tourists, less kind of dedicated campers.
1: Right. But on the flip side, it'll bring jobs. Sure. And this local area doesn't have anything that is big other than, you know, like 10 miles away, there's Stanton, Kentucky, which is kind of a city ish. You wouldn't call it a flourishing
2: economy. In the immediate surrounding area. Right. There's just not a lot of stuff going the on. The
1: place, the Red River Gorge really picks up during the summertime. Yeah, yeah. And so It's a
2: very uh, tourism-laden area.
1: Yes. and But, I mean, like I said, I kind of, I just don't think the resort would go too well with the area. Yeah. So. It
2: would, it would be a transition that would take a while to figure out its equilibrium. Yeah. Right. And it would be a real transition for the people that live here right now that are used to a certain way of living and that are used to a certain amount of traffic and a certain amount of people. Um, Now in the long run, it might work out to be a really good, you know, environment for everybody. Yeah. Um, But in the short term, it may be kind of a tough transition. Um, You know, and then one of the, the guys that came out to the campsite yesterday, the one guy that we've seen out here, uh, you know, he mentioned something that I think is worth talking about where you know they've talked about it, this could bring a lot of economy to the area, which is great. But there's a decent chance that the operations and a lot of the management of said resort might end up being a, a larger national company. And if that's the case, you may not see as much of that money stay here locally. So that would probably be a big part of like the legislation and making sure that all that stuff is set up. With some rules in place at the front end where, like, you know, you can't just have some big national company come in and sweep up all of the economy and just right, all the profit
1: back out of the area. Yeah, because then that would legitimately, are we okay? Yeah. That would legitimately crush the area. Yeah. If all the economy went to that place and then just escaped. That would, yeah, that would crush the area. Yeah,
2: because inevitably there's going to be a greater environmental impact on the area. The question is, can you offset it with greater economy and resources that then help you kind of repair and, and right. make, you know, better infrastructure in the future for those purposes? Then it all kind of makes sense. It's just got to have a really good plan in place from the
1: beginning. And, and that's just every place in general that has any kind of national park. You know, eventually, like you have a Glacier National and they I think they have a resort, out there, don't they? I don't know. Sarah's, there's a large hotel, oh, a large okay. hotel there, yeah. yeah. And there's
2: there's a large hotel and lots of lodging in Yosemite as well. I mean, yeah. that stuff exists. Yeah, And people have figured out, you know, how to do it. Uh, it just takes, you know, the right amount of planning and good communication. We just spent opening day of trout season at Merrimack Spring Park, which is one of the four trout parks in Missouri. And we've spent a lot of our time fishing at Montauk State Park, which is owned by the state of Missouri and managed by the Missouri Department of Conservation. Uh, Merrimack Spring is actually the only one of the four trout parks in Missouri that are managed by a nonprofit foundation. And that park used to be owned by a private family that donated the land to or entrusted the land to a nonprofit foundation to basically take care of it. And then uh, the Missouri Department of Conservation manages their hatchery and kind of helps them with their fish operations.
1: Oh, okay. That's kind of cool.
2: And what's interesting is that Merrimack Spring Park, because the original stipulation of the trust was that the land and the park should maintain as close to its original state and landscape as possible it's become a challenge for them to build new stuff, right? And to, I don't want to say keep pace with, you know, the other parks in the area, but to provide some of the same accommodations and, um, you know, amenities that the other parks do because they don't have that sta- that same... Right, you know, they have of, an
1: existing, I guess you would say, contract or... Well, the state will.
2: owns it itself, so the state right. can kind of choose to do with it what it wants. Um, You know, and I'm friends with the executive director for the James Foundation that manages uh, Merrimack Spring Park. Shout out to Wes. Uh, (laughs) And I know that, you know, part of their long term goals are to hopefully at some point, maybe down the road, bring some additional amenities uh, to the park. Uh, it's certainly not anything that they have, you know, kind of plans in stone for, or even, you know, kind of down in a, on paper. But, um, you know, one of their challenges is they have to figure out a way to do that without, you know, uh, going against the credo of the, the foundation, right. Which is like, Hey, we really want to keep this as original as possible. Um, and so it's, it's one of those, it's the same kind of challenge, right. They have to figure out a way to, Bring in new amenities, new economy, new opportunities, new jobs, but you've got to kind of be a good steward of the land, which is kind of the theme of our podcast and a lot of our conversations over the course of this weekend. But uh, you have been being a good steward of the land, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, being a good steward of the land is a major part of it, but something on that nature, because I think they wanted to buy like 12 or 13 acres, something like that. It's a lot of land for a resort. Yeah. And my thing is, could they actually keep up with that land and the surrounding area and keep it the way it is now? Like, are they just going to bulldoze that many trees right. or are they going to keep it natural and make some kind of natural hiking trail in it yeah. or something like that? If they, they do that, will, then I
2: could get behind it. Yeah. And will they have access easily for cars? Because, I mean, you know, as we've seen coming in and out of the gorge, you know, especially coming through and out a tunnel uh, or NADA tunnel for all of you out there that not not an uh, but not Nada. a tunnel. N a d d a. Yeah, n a d d a. When we came through there, that's literally one lane wide, and you know, as a, if another car's coming the other way, yeah, you gotta wait. wait. Yeah, so, it used
1: to be an old logging, like a, a railroad train, passed pass through there. It was a old, and it's literally about fifteen foot high about what 20 foot wide it's, I, if it's that fine. i mean
2: it's one car wide yeah and there's i mean i wouldn't want to ride a bicycle next to a car in there no because you probably get squashed up against the side yeah. so uh let me kind of conclude with talk to me a little bit about what you're planning on doing up in pennsylvania i know that there's kind of a, a bigger tr- uh you know camp out that you guys are going to go and and participate in uh tell me a little bit about what your next part of your 12 for 12 challenge holds.
1: so it is a Uh, It is a group hang, I guess you would call it. Uh, It's called MAHA, the Mid-Atlantic Hammock Hangers Association. Cool. Uh, By the time this podcast comes out, it'll probably be over already. (laughs) But uh, up there, uh, a company called Dutchware. Yeah. I wouldn't say sponsoring it, but host it. Sure. Because when they're up there, they don't want to sell their gear or have any other hammock companies sell their gear it's really just a laid back type thing that's awesome and uh it's uh dutch's wife uh is the one i believe that hosts it kind of organized yeah or is the like is the actual organizer of the event cool and uh yeah it's just a group of people that gets up there and goes up there and has fun there's a raffle uh and i for the life of me i forget what it uh, sponsors or what it does, uh, what the money Where goes the to. Where the money goes to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it, it shapes me. Uh, but Probably at- some sort of either local
2: search and rescue or some sort of nonprofit that does conservation work or land management. Like most of the time, those yeah. raffles go to something exactly. related yeah. and, and close to you know heart for the people that are in that kind of space.
1: Yeah, like the one that we used to host out here went to the Wolf County Search and Rescue. Yeah,
2: team. which was really cool.
1: Yeah. Uh, but that's where we plan on going, you know, from Louisville to Lancaster, it is about a nine hour drive. So we're leaving, uh, either late Wednesday night or early Thursday morning. It just depends on if my work allows me to leave. Gotcha. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we plan on driving up there, just having some fun. We're probably going to hit DC and just see everything. Cause I've never been to DC before. And oh, that'll be wild. Yeah uh and then we're just gonna take our time you know and uh one of my favorite things to do on hammocking trips is go to like local food places and try out the food in the area
2: yeah that'll be fun yeah uh
1: we like to do uh we like to follow gaffietti's diners drive-ins and dives yeah good model yeah and that's basically what we do and we hang out for the weekend or week or however long we're gonna be there we're gonna be there for four days i think and then head back on sunday rinse repeat
2: Sounds like a great trip, man. I, I wish you the best. I hope you have a fan-fucking-tastic time, and stay safe, and uh, we'll do a, a little episode about the trip when you get back. That sounds great. Sounds good, man. Well, this was a ton of fun. Everybody, Casey Heater, my buddy from Kentucky, my camping buddy, uh, we will have to do another one of these before I scream out of town, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's That sounds great. Sounds good, bud.